This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Thank you very much to the BC Humanist Association, as to our chairperson and all the members. It's a pleasure to meet all of you. <laughs> okay, first let us see where Burma is. This is a small country in Asia. So, so how Burma, if you had to look at the microscope, this is, this is Burma. It was surrounded by uh, what you call uh, by two big countries, China, uh, we have uh, one, uh, uh, one and a half billion people, and, and uh, of course there's India on this side, and this is Southeast Asia. This Southeast Asia is one of the most densely populated area of the world. That's why uh, we have half a billion people, and it was in between them that Burma was hinged into that. Desert. This is the Jakarta area. So why in Burma we have so many indigenous people or ethnic nationalities. We call it ethnic nationalities. In the Burma census, is that ethnic nationalities, you must be in Burma, your forefathers must be in Burma for at least 2,000 or 4,000 years. So a sort of indigenous people. So if we were to apply this uh, Burmese term of uh, ethnic nationality, none of us will be Canadians. Only the uh, aborigines, only the first nation will be the Canadians. So this is what we call ethnic nations. That is where the argument is about the car of the, uh, whether Rohingya is an ethnic nationality or not. That is the topic. So why do we have so many ethnic nations? Because the migrations do from Burma, come from Mongolia, from China, from and countries that another group. Another group come from Tha- from China. They call we call it Thai Chinese, right? Uh, and they mix here. And another group from Munkama, from Cambodia, as well as from the island nations of Philippines, Indonesia, and so and so and so, they come here and then mix here. And we have here the mountain ranges as well. So the psyche and the rationality of the Burmese is they have no security and they are very vulnerable. And that's why I And that is what most of the uh, foreign leaders know about it. Now let us hear what. Uh, the American ambassador, Derek Mitchell, say about Burma. So number one is geography. This is a country of 51 and a half million people, surrounded by about 3 billion. I mean, it is, uh, you have China on one border, you have India on another border, you have 170, 180 Muslims in Bangladesh across a porous border, a front relationship with Thailand. They fought Thailand over many centuries. With that kind of an environment, the only thing they felt they had for protection, I you call it politically, uh, were mountains and malaria. <laughs> they had this horseshoe of mountains along the ridge. And then folks would, would invade, and malaria would take them, and then they'd have to retreat, and then they'd invade again, and malaria, and then and so when Burma fall into the British Empire, that was way back in 1826, they thought that Burma was just an extension of the Indian Empire. So it was administered as one country. 
And then the British discovered that here, the, there were the Bengalis, the West Bengal and East Bengal together, now has something like one billion people, right? So, so they encouraged the overpopulated areas into Burma to do the uh, agriculture. For after all, the British Empire, the British Empire is a money-making machine. They want to have the people to grow rice because here they discovered that this a very scarcely populated area and also scarcely populated area, and besides, it's a very fertile area. So they encourage the migration from the Indian continent, especially in the Bengalis, into this arrogant area. And this uh, is the root of migrations of how they come. So some of them come from Calcutta and some from Dhaka. But the main mm, population come from Chittagong because very near from Chittagong to Sitwe, they come from. So since there is one country, there no need to be immigration or any papers. They just go and they, um, they work there. And later, the British discover uh, that uh, Baba was entirely a new country, nothing to do with India. And so they separated administration uh, from India to Burma, it called a directal administration. It was separated in 1938. Uh, so Burma became uh, what is called a British Empire, entirely a new country. And this is when they administered Burma, they discovered that Burma is, is composed of so many tribes. And here, the Myanmar are only here. The one called, called Burma or the Myanmar, Myanmar tribe is here. Here are the Nam Myanmar. Here are the, uh, the uh, Chin. And here are the Kachin. Here are the Shan. Here are the Kareni. And the Karen, Mo, and Rakhine. There are so many ethnic tribes. So what do they do is, for the Myanmar, they administered it from Rangoon, now called Yangon. And for the uh, frontier areas, they administered it from Upper Burma, from Manly area, and this fair. So since that time, uh, what happened here is that, and this is uh, the British ambassador to Thailand, Derek Mitchell. He was he's still living in London, and he make a research on it, and what is what is it? This is a very simple answer to the matter of British practice. There was no such identity as Ranger known to the British government of either India until 1937 or Baba after the separation of India from 1st April to that year. In the 122 years between the conquest of Arakan, which was in 1826, and the Burmese independence of 1948, not a single reference of Ranger is to be found in any of the British official report, regional gazetteer, Census, legislation, private correspondence, or personal remembrance. Even if such a self-identification had been made, the census enumerator would have written Chittagonians as they were under strict under instruction to do uh, both in 1921 and in 1931 census. That was the British census. And if alternative identities were offered, there was, of course, there were other names, just like we call it Koto, Banna, Babuji. Ma, Zebadi, Cholia, Bengali, Surati, Pucha. We have so many names, but the word Rohingya never appears in the British record until uh, 1938 or 1942. The presence of the persons of Islamic faith in Arakan and indeed the whole of Burma had been recorded by the British in considerable detail and has in any case been attended by writers, historians, and nationalities. It is not a matter of dispute. 
The 1901 census described as the Arakan Mohammedans, and by 1931 they numbered something like 51,000. So where does the word origin of Rohingya come from? There was a big village in Arakan, and it was uh, the big village was inhabited by the Chilicolians. Chilicolians is a big, big village there, and then they were very authentic Muslim. Very, they adhered strict to the Muslim law, and they had a big earring and so on. And when the British encouraged the other Chilicolians to migrate here, uh, they want to stay in this village. But the villagers said, "We know that." You speak the same language as I, you are a Chilicolian and you are a Muslim, but you are not an authentic Muslim. You cannot stay in this village, you have to stay outside the village. And so they have to stay outside the village. But later, these people came more and more, and this uh, outside the village, they call it a new village, which in Burmese means Juate. So there's a Juahao means old village, and there's a Juate means a new village. And later, the new village uh, become, become much broken and then overwhelmed the old village and they called themselves all, we are all Juahau. Juahau Da in Burmese mean we are the people uh, from Juahau. And Juahau Da means you are the people from the new village. So Juahau Da is the, what we, in Arakanese language, it become Ruahau Da. So in Arakanian people, Rahonga, and to, and to a new Chittagonian coming and living here, listening to that Rahonga, I have to call myself Rahonga, and he heard that's why, oh, it's Rohingya. So that's the origin of why Rohingya came to. But still, it was not recognized by anybody else, even they call themselves as Rahonga or Rohingya. And this is the origin of Rahonga. But there were people living there, the people called them Mujahid. And what is Mujahid? They, they call themselves as Mujahid. They don't call themselves Rohingya at the time. They call themselves. So what is Mujahid? So Mujahid is one who dares to do the jihad. We are the Mujahid. We dare to do. There are many Muslims who dare not do the jihad. But only the Mujahid dares to do the jihad because he can die for all the religions. So they came here, at first most of them came as Sikhs, and this is all the historical records that became <coughs> the numerically dominant ethnic group in the major frontier. The British regarded the Bengalis as amenable subjects because, uh, because if compared to the Arakanese, and soon Akyab became, Akyab Mississippi became one of the major exported cities of the world, and that is why it helps Burma to become the rice ball of Asia that was before the Second World War. But things doesn't stay at then. There was a Second World War, and during the Second World War, the British ran away to India, that's everybody knows about it. And the British, in trying to retake a Burma, they organized the Muslim and on them, promised them a sort of an independence. And that is where the problem started. We'll give you independence and started. But instead of turning the guns on the Japanese, they kill all the infidels in Northern Arakans. 
let's call all the infidels. Who are the infidels? They are the Buddhist Arcan uh, Buddhist Arcanis, Buddhist Rakhani. So in the Mondo massacre, which was the in Mondo area, they killed thirty thousand <coughs> Rakhine Buddhists in one day. And the whole of among this three township of Bugidang, Mondo, and Rate Town, they killed all the Buddhists and they determinated. So the spectacle of genocide and ethnic cleansing has been in Arakan since 1942. That is history. And, uh, that is history. So, and when the British came over, they, uh, uh, what you call, uh, uh, th that is the situation. Now, so there was a spectacle. So, in this town, this three township, which uh, 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 sorry, which we have, uh, Arakan is a strip of land here. So, this three township was dominated by the Rohingya. Where the other rest are, are dominated by by the, uh, by the uh, Arakanese. Okay, let us forget about Arakan and let us turn our history on India. India gained independence in 1947. And when India gained independence, India was divided into two entities. One is Pakistan and one is India. And Pakistan had two countries, yes? East Pakistan and West Pakistan. And, West Pakistan. and when East Pakistan was formed, at the specter of that independence, this Mujahid led by, when there was a specter of independence, a Mujahid delegation was sent by Jamul Abdul Ulama Islam to Ali Jinnah of Aragon. Who is Ali Jinnah? Ali Jinnah is the founder of Aragon in as much as Gandhi is the founder of India. So they went, these Muslim leaders went over to Ali Jinnah and asked them to incorporate these two townships, these three townships from Arkan area to join East Pakistan, which means they are not only infringing on the national sovereignty of the Union of Burma, which just gained independence, but also taking the chunk of the motherland of these three townships from Burma to join with East Pakistan. Of course, when Burma has so many ethnic nationalities and so many insurgencies, but not a single uh, ethnic nationality tried to take this chunk of the motherland to join with a foreign country. Uh, this is, uh, history has been recorded here. Yeah. So they went over to uh, Ali Jinnah and Ali Jinnah uh, and asked them to cooperate. But Ali Jinnah said, no, I have already problem with, lots of problem with India of this. Uh, Muslim killing the Hindus, killing the Hindus, nothing to do. Go and sort it out with your Burmese counterpart. And so Ali Jinnah refused them. And so they came back and then they were already armed by the British. And so the, they started a rebellion of 3,500 Mujahidins. At that time they don't call them Rohingya, they call Mujahidin rebels. Burma at that time doesn't have the the Burmese army. There's no Burmese army at the time. There was a Union army. Burma, the, the Union army. The Union army composed of the, all the ethnic nationalities. We have uh, four Chin Brigade, five Kachin, five Garan, 
two shams, and so they are all Muslim refugees. And it was a democratic government led by Prime Minister Ulu. Prime Minister Ulu tried to negotiate with them, but they won't accept. So the, uh, the Prime Minister sent uh, this Union Army and quelled the, uh, the ruin, uh, quelled these Mujahideens. Many of the Mujahideens went over to East Pakistan, and all the, the remaining ones they negotiated with Prime Minister Ulu, and since then. Burma has accepted this Mujahideen as their Burmese citizens. And for this, they were given 10 minutes broadcasting from the Burma Broadcasting Service in Rangoon. This is a fact. And in the sign, of course, I can, uh, when you ask questions, I can say the detail of the ceremony and so but through a lack of time. Which means they were recognized as the, uh, the, the, okay, that is, what really happens with that? Now, Burma doesn't stay democracy for a long time. Soon, General Nguyen took over the country, and then he started the things. And this is the Mujahideen press, of what the uh, the Burmese press, how uh, depicting how this Mujahideen tried to take the country into other countries. And this is the Mujahideen flag. Under this flag, they call it Kajamidha flag. So, and then there was a military coup. OK, then set aside the Rohingya. Where am I at the time? Where am I? I'm just a 16-year-old boy and knows nothing about politics. I know I have to play, and I have to study, that's all. And I was a first-year student at the regular university. And I'm very happy here. But in Burma, there's a saying that because the independence started, was started by the Rangoon University students at the time, that was Aung San was student, the father of the lady was Aung San, so he started the movement. So there was a saying that what Rangoon University think of today, Burma will think of tomorrow. So, and General Nguyen and the Burmese general knows that the main the brain behind all uh, the resistance movement to the uh, to, to the uh, to the military will come from university. So that so this is the university and this is the uh, Rangoon University Student Union. And there was a tea shop here and we used to roam along here and it was very happy here. But naturally the students they hate the military and so on seven July nineteen sixty two they demonstrated here, and this is my hall. And I was one of the students among them. And they were just a mistake. And suddenly, they shoot into the crowd, into the crowd of the students, killing 126 students. Providentially, I escaped there, uh, escaped there. And then many of the students <coughs> ran away and, uh, uh, what you call, and joined the insurgency. <laughs> but I happened to meet a teacher who happens to be a Muslim, of course, a Muslim, I said, you want to fight the government? You, fight, you want to fight this military? He's too strong. If you go and fight, you'll be only one gun. Why don't you go in, inside and fight? And since then, I have become here. Of course, I went back to the university. So the student union, which we are so happy, so they not only they kill the students, they kill the student university students, but they also blow up the student union like, like this. So, and as I've already, this, the next day, the student union became in, like this. So 
the Nyuma military, now the Tamado, they started the ethnic cleansing policy. So this is the fact of Burma when we gained independence. And this, the star is the Myanmar, <coughs> surrounded by Shan, Chinka, Chinkajin, and uh, all the ethnic nationalities. And when Nguyen take over, he changed the flag into like this, so that they were associated It's just trying to make one religion, one country, one language. That is what they are trying to do. That is what the military is trying to do up to this day. So, which means, so, and this is what it happened here. And uh, since then, uh, I become a very changed man. Okay, let us forget about Burma and turn again on to Bangladesh. As I've earlier, there was West Pakistan and East Pakistan. But East Pakistan knows that West was expecting here are the Pathans, not the Bengalis, and here are the Bengalis. And so, the, uh, so there was a uh, liberation, Pakistan liberation, well, that was way back in 1971. And they sent uh, the army here, and there was ethnic cleansing, and more than 10 million refugees run away to the neighboring countries, and about 3 million of them come into Burma. Come into Burma. Of course, the, uh, the Burmese has to accept them since they are refugees. So, so, but when the uh, uh, West Pakistan Liberation War, the Bangladesh become into being, Burma was the first country to recognize the Bangladesh and ask the refugees to go back, about three billion of them. But not all of them go back. They discover that uh, this, in this Bondo area, they can speak the same language, uh, and then it's very fertile area to see, and so uh, half about half a million of them remained. And how did you know this was admitted by the Bangladesh ambassador to the British ambassador? And it's in the British records of the, uh, in, in London. So, and this, uh, this is what really ha happened. <laughs> and as I said, Nguyen, uh, Nguyen, uh, when he comes started at the present, but they will try to organize in 1973 the Revolution Council sought the public opinion of drafting a new social constitution. The Muslim from the Meiju frontier, this, this three township I call Mithyam, submitted a proposal for the creation of a separate Muslim state and a Congress of Rohingya parties was held at the Bangladesh Baba border and called it the Morashina. Uh, Rohingya National Liberation. By that time, they had already adopted. Once the treaty was signed, they dropped the name of Mujahid because Mujahid is very radical during the jihad. So they don't call themselves Mujahid, and then they st started calling themselves Rohingya. So they called it. And when the uh, national uh, this Rohingya National Liberation from also this become the last force of Rohingya who launched a military operation known as the Operation Dragon King, and approximately 200,000 and 250,000 Rohingyas fled to Bangladesh, where they were recognized as the, uh, as the, uh, what do you call, as the UN refugees, as the refugees. So my question is, here during the liberation war of East Pakistan, uh, why did 
the Rohingyas are not settled. The Rohingya in the liberation war participated not from the Bengali side, but from the West Pakistan side. So they were acting as informers and spies and informers. Uh, spies and informers, uh, West Pakistan acting as spies and informers. So when the Bangladesh came into being, this Jammu Uti Alima, Islam leaders were finished off, and this is the main reason of why Bangladesh did not want the Rohingyas. And this is the main reason. They don't want to have uh, this betrayers in their midst. So this is uh, the uh, part of history. Okay, if the Rohingya belong to the indigenous Burmese ethnic group, and the question is why does it not join and identify itself with other ethnic nationality movement? And this is also the question. Way back in the 70s, to be exact, in, on May 10, 1976, at Banaplo, the National Democratic Front NDF was established by 12 different ethnic nationality political parties and organizations. And Rohingya did not take part or even make an attempt to identify themselves with the persecuted ethnic nationalities of Burma. While the vigorous ethnic cleansing goes on in the late 90s and early 20s, all the Muslim, all Burma Muslim Union formed. And in 1983, the Muslim Liberation Organization of Burma was formed. The Rangers were simply aloof and alien to the alien to the Burmese scene, and no wonder nobody in Burma accepted them. The other aspect which I also discovered in my research is that even though there were several ethnic groups in Arakan states, such as the Rakhine, the Mro, the Chakma, the Kaman, Dainet, Monja, adhere to the Muslim, even though they worship Muslim, yet they have no problem with the Rakhine. So, what, why, so this Rohingya mm, become a big problem. That's why the Rohingya uh, in diaspora. So nobody want them. So nobody want when because they cannot identify with the Burmese ethnic nationalities. So uh, the uh, Burma would, uh, don't want them, and and um, Bangladesh don't want them, and so they have to go to some other countries, and this is where. And most of the Rohingyas in diaspora and was uh, designated at the United Nations as the most persecuted people of the world. And this is where other uh, countries. Um, so, so, and this is where uh, they are uh, the, the, the Rohingyas, uh, there was in Thailand, uh, how they were trafficking chess. And one thing, do they have a systematic relationship? In Rohingya, there's no central committee. They have so many political organizations, but there's a country. But in Burma, if you go to Karen, there's a central committee there. If you go to Kachin, who are rebelling, they have a central committee there. Chun have a central committee there. Karen have a central committee. And so on and so forth, they all have. Even the Arkanis, who are not the Rohingya, but still fighting their country, they have the central committee. But Rohingya doesn't have any central committee. <coughs> so, so, before going to Rohingya, let us see what is the geographical position of Arakan. The Arakan state is a large strip of land stretching along the Bay of Bengal to the west and flanked by the high mountains to the east. Through the geographical position, Arakan finds itself at the crossroad of the two continental entities, South Asia and Southeast Asia, between Buddhist Asia and the Muslim Hindu Asia, between the Bangalore tribe and the Indian Vitorites. 
And this is what is the Jacobus situation of the American states. And this is how American was. Yeah. So if we were to analyze the Rohingya position, there were two categories of Rohingya. One is the majority, if not, there was 98% of them. They are farmers, retailers, petty traders, and lead a simple contented life. Have no problem calling them Bengali Muslim or Kala or, or anything else. Kala or anything. Uh, the name they inherited traditionally indicating the place of where they came from. A great many of them have not the word, had not heard of the word Rohingya and did not have the slightest idea of what is all driven them out, out, of, out, out of their traditional homes and why, they, and why they cannot live in peaceful life just any of their predecessors. The other 2% of the people are the elites and the radicals living in Bangladesh, India, Middle East and in the West. And they are the ones themselves. No doubt they are good organizers. So when I went over to Europe, especially to send in Stockholm, the Bangladesh, European Bangladesh committee invited me to speak. So I went there hoping to meet Rohingya. But there was not a single Rohingya. All were Caucasians. They were well dressed. They are, some of them are millionaires. And they are well informed. They just, of course, they're very nice about India or, or, or Rohingya. But they just want to help the persecuted people. And that's how they exploit it. And now, as you know, also the Rohingya radio broadcasting regularly from Oregon. And you can turn on it. And so what they're doing is that. So question, they are very, if this 2% of the Rohingyas are very good organizers and trying to change the world, uh, the, the opinion. So, and this is the history of the Rohingya. I'm not asking that history is repeating itself or something like that. It's up, up to future. Now, the current affairs. What is the current affairs? Is that in the mid of 2016, that's last year, Haraka el Akin, or the faith movement led by Atta Ula, led by who was, who was born in Pakistan, a foreigner, and educated in. Saudi Arabia, he led uh, uh, a resistance movement and killed uh, some of the policemen, attacking some nine police stations. And this year, uh, the, he attacked the uh, 30 police stations. Okay, Dawson City has already become uh, the, uh, the de facto leader. And also, we must know that even though Burma is changing from uh, dictatorship is still, it is only half. In Burma, we have two governments. You know about it. I'm not going to emphasize more about it. And the military government is more powerful. And Aung San knows that there is a problem. So he asked the outsider, Kofi Adan, to uh, set up a commission and to put up the recommendations so that they can solve the problem peacefully. And on the day where Osasuji is going to announce that they accept the uh, Rohingya problem and this fellow attack. And so this is the fellow, and these are the caves, and of course this has accomplished, and these are the cases. So in the, uh, in the current crisis, we have two versions, and let us hear what, what version of Michelle this version. Is that Aung San Suu Kyi was the ultimate beacon of democracy. She had been fighting for human rights. I mean, now. was stood up to the very brutal military dictatorship from Burma, and that's why she received the Nobel Peace Prize. But since 
becoming the de facto leader of the country, her position has somewhat shifted. She has received international condemnation for initially her silence and lack of sympathy over the hardship of the Rohingya community. And now that she's making a statement, she's coming out to defend the actions of the government, saying that the violence is to stop the spread of terrorism across the state of Rakhine, which we know to be the heartland of the Rohingya. She's referring to them as terrorists or a minority. In addition to that, she's jumping on that fake news uh, phenomena. Now, what's particularly getting a great deal of criticism here is her very ironic statement that she made referring to her own hardship, saying, we know very well what it means to be deprived of human rights and democratic protection. So we make sure that all the people in our country are entitled to protection of their rights. This ought to stir up further criticism, but not enough. The loudest voices seem to be coming from the region, firstly from Bangladesh, which is bearing the brunt of this refugee crisis, from other Muslim-majority nations like Malaysia, and most recently Indonesia, and further afield from the Islamic Republic of Iran. Now, analysts that I'm speaking to are saying, if the international community doesn't step up and go beyond this verbal condemnation, doesn't put direct pressure on the Burmese government, we can see, which we've already seen ethnic cleansing here, which according to one UN official, is the ultimate goal of the Burmese government. So now the statement I joined from Washington now by former U.S. diplomat Priscilla Clapp, senior advisor of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Thank you for joining us on France 24. Thank you. And you were chief of mission in Burma from 1999 to 2002. It was a time when Aung San Suu Kyi was, well, was describing an icon, a beacon for peaceful resistance. And she was put under house arrest while you were there. Has your perception of her changed in the past two weeks? No, I simply don't accept the, the um, narrative that we just heard. Uh, there, was, there was indeed a terrorist attack in Rakhine. It came from outside. It was perpetrated by people in the Rohingya diaspora living in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia coming in through Bangladesh. And they have killed a lot of security forces. This started in October, and the latest attack was timed uh, to follow the recommendations and the presentation of the recommendations of the Kofi Annan International Commission on Rakhine, which Aung San Suu Kyi has accepted and agreed to implement. These recommendations call for a long-term solution there. She was already working on it when it was disrupted by this latest terrorist attack. Their tactics are terrorists, there's no question about it. She's not calling the entire Rohingya population terrorists. She is referring to a group of people who are going around with guns, machetes, and IEDs, and killing their own people, in addition to Buddhists, Hindus, and others that get in their way. They've killed a lot of security forces, and they are wreaking havoc in the region. The people who are running, fleeing out into Bangladesh are not only fleeing the response of the security forces, they're fleeing their own, their own radical groups because they've been attacking Rohingya and particularly the leadership who were trying to work with the government on the citizenship process and other humanitarian efforts that were, have, that were underway there. This has all been sort of thrown into a cock hat right now with the confusion that has been sown by this latest attack. Yeah, but and I think the international community has to sort out the facts before making accusations. Right, it, it was an attack by militants against uh, 
against the armed forces in Northwest Burma that triggered this. That's undoubted. But the question is, shouldn't Aung San Suu Kyi have had at least a word of sympathy for the more than 125,000 refugees who fled to Bangladesh? I'm sure that she does have sympathy for them. I don't know. She may have. She has made a number of statements recently, and and it's not clear how many have actually fled to Bangladesh. They are. They have already told Bangladesh that they will work with them to return them uh, uh, safely to the United States when the time comes. Right now, many of their villages have been torched, and they were not torched by the military. The military has done some damage. I won't deny that. But the militants themselves have been going around torching these villages. Should uh, Burma's authorities pick up on that call made by Norway to let in humanitarian aid groups? They are letting them in, but they can't let them into the area where there is so much uh, violence going on because it's dangerous. There were many humanitarian aid groups in there already, but they have uh, they have made their own decision to leave under the current circumstances to pull back. They're probably in Sidway or some other parts of Rakhine State where it's safer right now. Um, some international press, some press have been allowed in with security uh, protection, but it's still a very dangerous area, and these people are still marauding. Now, Priscilla, earlier you said that Aung San Suu Kyi does have sympathy with the Rohingya community. Why is it that we're hearing reports of landmines being laid between the border of Myanmar and, of course, Bangladesh. Does that show a lack of sympathy? That's to prevent the Rohingya from returning to their country. Who is laying the landmines? The reporting The landmines are also in the hands of the terrorists. We don't know who's doing that. Bangladesh accuses, uh, squarely accuses authorities in Burma of laying those landmines. Well, that, that may be so. They may be accusing the Burmese, but that's not necessarily Who's doing it? Nobody really knows what the situation is on the ground. Uh, we've heard uh, criticism from the likes of uh, Desmond Tutu and other Nobel laureates uh, asking for Aung San Suu Kyi to speak out more. What's your reaction to that? I understand the situation she's in. I've lived there, and it's a very divisive society. There are many different ethnic groups, many religions, and with the with the transition that's going on, they have a lot of freedoms now, and and some of them are abusing those freedoms. There are extremists on the Buddhist side who have become very political, including the main opposition party. Um, they're using the anti-Muslim sentiment for their own political purposes. Rakhine politicians are doing the same thing. So if she wades into the middle of this very volatile internal political situation, with a lot of harsh words, one way or the other, either against the military or against the Buddhists, she's going to be dead meat. So how, how, what should the international community be doing at this particular point in time? If you're... I think the international community is already on the job. You have to look at, at what the Kofi Annan Commission did. They, they made a very thorough investigation of the whole situation. They came up with a whole set, a very comprehensive set of recommendations pointing out what would lead to a, okay. a long-term... Okay, what did the United Nations of Canada please listen? ...on the situation in Rakhine, and I focused mainly on the report from the Rakhine Commission, which I had the privilege of 
excellent, but we managed to produce a report which was uh, with consensus without much tension, even though we think that it's a strong report, constructive and honest. Uh, at this meeting this afternoon, it's clear that everybody agrees on what is required to be done in the short term. Stopping the violence, getting humanitarian assistance to those uh, in, in need, helping eventually for the dignified and voluntary return of the, uh, those who have left and are in Bangladesh. This is not going to be easy. They, can, they will only go back if they have a sense of security and confidence that their lives will be better. And we, in the recommendation, indicated that they should not be put in camps. They should be allowed to go back to their villages, and they should be helped to rebuild and reconstruct. The report covers a wide range of uh, activities, I'm sure you've seen from economic and social development to intercommunal dialogue, to education, health, freedom of movement, and above all, on the key question of citizenship and verification, which has been a real problem from the, for the Muslim community. And uh, as you know, the state councillor accepted the report and indicated they will implement it. She set up an inter-ministerial committee to work on the implementation. Just before I left Geneva, I met with the minister chairing the inter-ministerial group leading the implementation of the uh, report. She also intends to set up an expert group to help advise the implementation of, on the implementation of the recommendations. And this would also include international experts. And hopefully that would also give the possibility for dialogue between the international community and Myanmar. What was important is that they have accepted the report, and the report is generally accepted by the member states, by humanitarian and development agencies, and NGOs. And so it could form a, a framework and a basis for action as we move forward. And hopefully, the Myanmar and the international community can work together on these broad issues. And I think it's important for Myanmar that the plan is settled that will give them time and space to focus on the other major problems in the country at large, because it's taking lots of time and effort and resources. I'll take your question. Now let us hear what the UN Security Council said. This is chairperson of the UN Security Council. The Security Council. The Council had a very extensive discussion, exchange of views. Without any doubt, the Security Council insists on the matter. The following is what we have agreed. The members of the Security Council expressed deep concern about the situation in the Kain State acknowledging the initial attack on Myanmar security forces on 25th August, they condemned the subsequent violence which has led to over 370,000 people being displaced. They expressed concern 
about reports of excessive violence during the security operations and called for immediate steps to end the violence in Rakhine, de-escalate the situation, re-establish law and order, ensure the protection of civilians, restore normal socio-economic conditions, and resolve the refugee problem. They welcomed the government of Bangladesh's effort to provide assistance to refugees and welcomed UN and other international efforts to support the government of Bangladesh. They noted the commitments made by the government of Myanmar to provide humanitarian assistance to all displaced individuals without discrimination. They called on the government of Myanmar to fulfill these commitments, facilitate humanitarian assistance to those in need in Rakhine State, and to ensure the protection and safety of humanitarian actors. They encouraged further dialogue and cooperation among the states concerned. They welcomed the Secretary General's efforts to encourage calm in Rakhine. They agreed on the importance of a long-term solution to the situation in Rakhine and called for implementation of the recommendations of the Advisory Commission on Rakhine State, chaired by Kofi Annan. In that context, they welcomed as a first step the government of Myanmar's establishment of the Ministerial Implementation Committee for the Rakhine Advisory Commission. They confirmed that the international community stands ready to support the government of Myanmar with implementation. So what happened to Canada? I think it's important for Canada to know what's going, going on in Myanmar um, for a couple of reasons. One is that the head of that government, um, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, is also an honorary Canadian citizen. And secondly, I think also, because Canada has uh, re-engaged the United Nations, um, uh, wants to be another actor in global affairs, and we hear that Canada is back. And Canada, in the last 10 years, um, you know, brought about something called the Responsibility Protect, this international initiative that says we won't sit in our hands when mass atrocity crimes are taking place, but we'll, we'll get involved diplomatically, and worst case, worse, militarily to protect civilians if needed. And, um, and this is a case where, where that need a strong country that's going, that doesn't have any colonial baggage in the region, that can actually try to be an honest broker and, uh, and try to protect these civilians. And so that's why I think Canadians should care, and, um, and uh, what's happening in Myanmar also has potential to get into a much bigger conflict. Um, so we need to do something to actually help people there. Uh, those that haven't had the, the luck to leave yet, or those that want to stay but are, are, are facing deadly genocidal violence. I think, I think that's where uh, Canada can, can stand up and try to be more forceful and, and not just hope that Aung San Suu Kyi will take action, um, but actually force her to take action, or at least try to push her even stronger to do something, because if we don't uh, we'll make the promise of never again, um, another unfulfilled promise. Thing in Myanmar, where Russia said we're going to we're going to protect uh, the Myanmar government, China saying the same thing. So we're seeing power politics play out. Okay, what did our prime minister say?
sir. The book come. The book come to came to Burma. leaders of peaceful religions agreed to work together. And this is the final solution. Agreement was reached between the repatriation of refugees with the help of UNHCR. Both Bangladesh and Burma agree. So my conclusion is that Burma is four or five times larger than uh, uh, than Bangladesh. But in terms of population, Burma has only about one quarter of Bangladesh. So what we the Burmese are afraid of is that there will be an outflow of uh, the Bangladeshi Muslims came into Burma and overwhelmed Burma. And this is the main reason uh, of why the problem is now. Just open for questions. Uh, anybody can ask. Thank you. Thank you.